WebmasterRadio.fm Party like a rock star I thought you were going to stay tonight, aren't you? Well, I am. I was originally going to, you know, try and a few extra people popping into town. going to have to hook up a few beers and, you know, get stupid back. I almost got the feeling they were tossing back some drinks or something. Maybe Matt has finally given up the Sprite. Party like a rock star! It is, like, after 7 o'clock down here, which means it's way past drinking time. Yep. I think I'm going to head out, and we're going to go to this little club here called the Flying Saucer. Sit out on the patio, drink some Blue Moons. Party like a rock star! We'll sit down by the bay and have a, a nice evening uh, in Canada cocktail. Maybe you and I will have to throw a party. We'll have to charge money to let people in, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it would be like the guys in high school charging three bucks a head for the two kegger in the backyard. Hey, that works for me. SEO Rockstars. Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on Webmaster Radio.fm. Make an impact on your interactive marketing through performance, advertising, community outreach, and technology. Be captivated by the people who are leading the wave of change in the online marketplace. This is who AdTech is. Your weekly radio show. Get behind the scenes with industry giants. Be privy to the insider track. Witness the newest technologies. Make sure you're in the scene each week with AdTech Connect. You're connected now with your host. Hi, everybody. This is Susan Bratton, your host this week. I'm the chair of AdTech, which is a super fun job because I get to hear about all kinds of things interactive. Um, geez, I think we place over a thousand speakers at our shows every year. And so I learn about, you know, a mile wide, an inch deep on every technology there is in digital marketing. And I realized that AdTech now with, I don't know, we'll probably have 20,000 attendees wanted to we wanted to go a step further with the show and really work on what I call per- personal professionalism. Uh, the idea that if you're coming out to spend two and a half days at a conference, maybe we should teach you more than just interactive marketing stuff. And so we started some personal workshops. And uh, one of them, the very first one we did was really a success. It was called Managing Your Email Deluge by Pierre Kawan from People on the Go. He's been on the show, and, and he helps you get your, e- your Outlook inbox organized. And that was really cool. And people came up to me and said, I like learning about more than just optimization and media innovation. And this is great. I can take this back, and this helps me in my daily job. And I thought, all right, that's working, so let's do some more. And one of the things that uh, Dana Todd, the Search Engine Marketing Professional Organization's president, came up with an idea. She said, what about a session on brainstorming? You know, our, our business is a pretty creative business, and we need to do something to teach people to process around brainstorming. And we found someone actually in our industry, Jordan Ion, the chairman of Created, is also the CEO of Subscriber Mail. And Jordan's going to do a session on brainstorming at the upcoming Chicago show, and he's on the show today. And then we started thinking about, all right, for Chicago, the intersection of creativity and technology, we need to pull these things together. You know, the technology allows us to be even more creative than we ever were. But what's happening in the area of technology, and how can we bring emotion into the creativity? And so we found Dan Hill. He's the president and founder of Sensory Logic, this cool company out of St. Paul, Minnesota, that has a fascinating science foundation with, uh, it's essentially the science of emotion. So, you know me, I love a theme. I have to have a theme. So, my theme for the show that this, uh, this week, because it's about creativity, it's about love, it's about emotion, my show theme is this is the warm and fuzzy show. 
Now, for all of you massively testosterone-based men who just decided to switch off and do something else, I think you should stay. Because if you really want to get what you need, and you know what that is, you're going to need to learn about the things we have today. You're going to need to pop up in your creativity. You're going to need to learn about how to read emotion. And so stay on the show. Let's start with Dan Hill, president and founder of Sensory Logic, and hear what Dan has to say that you can use today. Dan, good morning. Good morning, Susan. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. So you have a fascinating job, man. Um, uh, I, do. I think what we should start with is exactly what this facial coding is and how you do automated emotion recognition. So let's get into that. Then we'll learn about your company and we'll talk about how you got to it and all that stuff. But tell everybody what this thing is that you do. Uh, it's called facial coding, and probably the best way to introduce it is Blink, the bestseller by Malcolm Gladwell. Yep. The only research technique he talks about in the book is facial coding, which is the art of reading people's faces and understanding what emotions they're feeling. And so, yeah, I, I read that book, so I went and grabbed my well-dog-eared copy of Blink out of my library this morning. And this, these two guys, Ekman and Friesen, ultimately assembled all of the potential facial combinations that humans could have and then coded that into specific meanings. Is that right? That is right. And it really goes back to Charles Darwin, who was an incredibly smart guy. Not just evolution, but Darwin was the first one to realize that emotions matter. He was the one who realized that in your face you reflect and communicate your emotions. And the real killer, Darwin realized that even a person born blind has the same facial expressions as your eye. In other words, it's universal. So it doesn't matter if you're from Papua New Guinea or from the Bronx. Your smile is a smile. You're happy as a happy. You're sad as a sad. You're pissed as a pissed. And everyone can tell. Exactly. We just finished testing in Japan. I spoke in Shanghai a few months ago. My guide said, you won't be able to read our face because we're too inscrutable. And he was dead wrong. So are you, have you, Dan, gotten really good at face reading because this is your business? Uh, yeah, I have, and it probably starts autobiographically because my family moved to Italy when I was six years old, and I went to Italian first grade in a fishing village, and I didn't know the language, and fortunately for me, Italians have a lot of body language, so that's how I could get by. Interesting. Now, how, how does the technology work? I mean, obviously what you're doing is you're helping marketers understand the emotions of their customers to dial in their messaging better, right? I mean, that's really what this is about, right? We apply it in a lot of different ways, but one of them is, yes, we will actually run not the usual focus crews, but instead individual interviews, and we're reviewing that videotape down to one-thirtieth of a second, potentially, to know what kind of emotional buy-in they, they are offering. And so how does that work? Do you have, like, a computer that maps the pinpoints of the face and then translate it to, translates it and outputs it, or what, how does that work? Well, originally we did it manually. We then bought some German software, and we are working with the automation so that we know, based on our database over time, you know, which muscle activities correspond to which emotions. There are 43 key muscles in the face, and the interesting thing is it's the only place in the body where the muscles attach right to the skin. So people do reveal things very quickly and much more so than they might realize. So let's talk about dating because that's probably the single thing. There, there are two things that I think our listeners want to know about. They want to know, both the men and the women want to know, what, facial, what are the facial giveaways for knowing when, when you've made a personal connection? Let's start with that one. Well, the upside is there's only one positive emotion. As uh, Robert Frost, the poet, once said, happiness makes up in height what it lacks in length. So only one positive emotion, it's happiness. Uh, I think the real interesting thing is there's a difference between a social smile 
and a true smile. Everyone can paste on the social smile during a date. That's just around the mouth. The true smile involves that little twinkle in the eye. Uh, you can start to look for it through crow's feet, but it's really the twinkle in the eye as the muscles relax uh, around your eyes. So the twinkle. If you're getting the twinkle, this is a good sign. Yep, you have a chance. Fantastic. All right, guys, you've got to go for the twinkle. Girls, you've got to put out the twinkle. This is, I guess the show is maybe we should just change the show from warm and fuzzy to the twinkle show, but that would be way too cute. So let's keep it where we have it. That's bad enough. Okay. So then the other one, salespeople. We always have a lot of people who are trying to sell new technology to buyers, marketers, and agency folks. What do they need to know? What, what are they looking for? Is it a twinkle or something else? Well, I think anytime you're in a sales situation, the person who's being sold to doesn't want to feel like they're being the, the prey. They don't want to feel like the salesperson's a predator. So I think you actually have to start on the negative side and hope that you're not creating fear or disgust in somebody. And fear is typically when the mouth goes wide, it stretches, like, oh, my God, what's happening to me? What kind of situation am I in? Uh, disgust tends to be the, the wrinkling of the nose. Uh, it, we do it physically, literally, for a smell that stinks, but if we don't like the salesperson, uh, we kind of have the same reaction. So if your customer's wrinkling their nose, you're yeah, not getting mouth is stretching wide and, and they just look like they're uncomfortable, mouth then you need to get them to a comfort level before you can hope to sell them. And is there anything that you have advice for about how to get them to a comfort level? Well, I think you have to show them that you care. Uh, I think if you can see what they have on their desk, where they go on vacation, something about their family, hobbies, where they're from, something so you can start to form a personal connection. I think a lot of people jump in way too fast to sell the offer, but they buy from someone they like. So you've got to start with forming the personal connection. So start with the twinkle so you don't get the wrinkle. That would be right. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, I like this. Now, automated emotion recognition. This is what your company does. And you apply this in many different ways. One of the things you've done is looked at the faces of cars and the faces of CEOs. Can we, can we talk about that? And the faces of characters. You have inanimate objects that you've, that you've actually studied the faces of. Can you tell our audience about that? Uh, sure, CEOs are, are fun, first of all. Uh, one of them was we looked at Carly Fiorni when she was still at HP, and we could see quite clearly for the investment firm that wanted us to evaluate whether she was going to be effective in stock price that uh, it was going to tumble as it did because she, just, she had a lot of fear, a lot of angst, a lot of anger, and I think she was uncomfortable in the role, and she made other people uncomfortable, and she just didn't get the best out of people. And obviously since she's departed, you know, HP's fortunes have you know, gone the other direction, much more north. Uh, we also looked at, um, you know, Martha Stewart and, and Ken Lay. Uh, Martha Stewart, you know, in many ways got convicted because people thought she was too smug. And you can see a lot of contempt on her face that really wasn't there earlier in her career. Uh, she's gotten a little bit too imperial, and I think the jury was happy to slap her down for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's interesting. The... Can, I, can I interrupt there on that one? Sure. Contempt. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but... I read this article somewhere that there is a, a, um, a professor in, at some university in Washington State who's, who watches videotapes, similar to what Sensory Logic does, who watches videotape of couples. He puts a couple up on a stage, and he has them talk about anything, and he videotapes them. It doesn't have to be anything contentious. It's just, you know, have a conversation, we're going to videotape it, and then we'll analyze it. And what he found was that he could predict with a 90, you know, 5% plus accuracy, couples who would stay together and couples who would divorce by looking at one component of their relationship, and that was the presence of contempt. Exactly. That if, if people yelled at each other, 
that was fine. Like having a having a fight, calling someone, you know, I jerk or whatever, that wasn't a problem. It was when it got into contempt. Have you seen anything like that in your work? And do, do you know that guy's name by any chance? Uh, yeah, it's John Gottlieb, and he runs something called the Love Lab at the University of Washington. And you're Perfect. absolutely right. He's found that contempt is the surest barometer that the relationship's not going to work, and I think for a very clear reason. When you are signaling contempt, you've made a moral judgment that the other party isn't worthy of you, that they're essentially beneath you. And I don't think it matters whether it's you know man and woman in a relationship or if it's a company and a customer. If you get to that stage, it's very hard to recover, as, as John's data has shown. Wow, so that's very interesting. I, I found that fascinating. So if your marriage is on the rocks, good to check that out. Maybe, maybe uh, see if you can detect the presence of contempt. Now, um, we talked about the faces of CEOs. Talk about cars. Talk about the faces of cars. There are actually one of the cars that you looked at was warm and fuzzy, which is our show theme today. Which one was that? Uh, well, the Mini Cooper is very warm and fuzzy. Mm-hmm. And the Volkswagen Beetle, I, I went actually to the Detroit Auto Show for uh, the New York Times, and the interesting thing is we were looking at a Volkswagen Beetle from a couple of years ago that didn't really sell well, and it was because the car was schizophrenic. On the front side of the car, they basically had both a frown and a smile, and if any car should be upbeat, it's the love bug. And it uh, seems basic, but they blew it, and now they've gone back to more happiness. And so you're, are you actually helping the automotive uh, companies redesign the uh, fascia of their cars? We have done work for several in the, in the industry, and we're now discussing with a very major manufacturer, uh, yes, looking at design reactions, and uh, the front of the car and the face of the car will be part of that. I love it. And there was one car that was described in the article that you sent me from Automotive News, being squinty-eyed like George Bush when he wants to make a point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I Do you actually... remember what that was? I don't remember which car that was offhand, but actually there's a whole bunch of cars that have started to... Uh, show a lot of anger and disgust. Uh, it just seems to be a reaction post-9-11. Everyone wants to, uh, you know, just show they're, they're uh, not afraid and they're going to, you know, push their way down the road. So it's a real movement in car design. Uh, the Mini Cooper and some others are, are playing the happiness, the warm and fuzzy angle, but most car designs aren't doing that. And the Japanese cars, which is probably one of the ones I'm referring to, do tend to have, you know, uh, smaller headlights that kind of suggest that squinty, angry look that, yes, George Bush often gets when he's uh, you know, dealing with the media, for instance. I love it. That's fantastic. Well, so the Republicans should go out and buy those squinty-eyed Japanese cars, I guess. They could identify with that. That would come full circle for them, huh? Yes, it would. <laughs> um, and Faces of Characters. Now, you have, uh, you have two books, which we're going to get to, and I'm interested in both. I'm going to buy them both, and I should have before we did this interview, and I'm sorry I didn't. Um, I knew about you and I knew about your work. I hadn't realized you had books until I got your bio this week. You, did, you have, a, you have a, essentially a white paper that you can download from Amazon.com for five ninety five. Now, I like that business model, and I want to hear about that, but it's about the faces of characters. So can you talk about the faces of characters and then tell us how that business model is working for you on Amazon? Well, the, the business characters, you know, we uh, went through, and one thing we've done is we've looked at the top ten icons from that age from the 20th century, and probably my favorite one is actually Betty Crocker, because if you go back and look at Betty Crocker historically, she doesn't smile very much for supposedly being a happy housewife. And uh, now General Mills, in their wisdom, has reduced Betty to a spoon. That's all you can find on the packaging. And I don't think they've lost anything by that. Uh, we've looked at Marlboro Man, who's you know, still incredibly popular and robust. Uh, Jolly Green Giant is actually pretty popular. Uh, if you look at the breakfast cereal characters like Tony the Tiger, they're always big, wide-eyed surprise and happiness because the cereal makers 
I try to make us comfortable with the idea that we're delighted to get up and go back to work the next day. <laughs> and maybe we are and maybe we aren't. But if we get up and go back to work instead of lying in bed, we'll eat more cereal. That's right. So they've mm-hmm. got to make it look exciting. So you, you walk down the cereal aisle and you'll see all sorts of you know, wide-eyed characters. It's not just Tony the Tiger. So the wide-eyed is, what, what does the wide-eyed represent? Well, that combined with the smile is the wow. You know, I'm, I'm delighted, I'm, I'm turned on, I'm excited about this. And I don't know if those cereals taste that good, but uh, they sure hope you think that. Got it. Well, let, let's go to some of, the, some of the clients that you've had. And, you know, what you'll have to do, what you probably need to do, because you can't tell us the exact insights of any specific client, but could you tell us some of the clients that you've worked for that you found most fascinating? And then can you tell us some of the insights you've gleaned from using your automated emotion recognition and overlaying that with their products? Give us some well, examples. Yeah, well, the very first client I can probably talk about now because it's, it's further downstream, it was for Target. And they were really wondering, essentially, whether they should stay in the department store business. And, of course, now they've sold uh, Marshall Fields. And what we found is that people verbalized that they were, just ha- they were happy with uh, you know, the department store, but emotionally they just weren't there. They really saw it as a place was where their aunt would buy them you know, a birthday gift or something. It wasn't for you know, the, the next generation of consumers. And so, uh, of course, in the end, Target decided to get out of that business. Constantly, they're more successful. How specifically did you figure that out? What were the fa- what were the face facial features of their their customers? So did you in- did you interview them? And how did that all work? We interview them. We look at the videotape, and uh, you know, essentially, what we're looking for is uh, one thing is how much emotional engagement do people have? Uh, if they're completely flat faced, no emotions showing. On it, showing uh, as they're looking at something, uh, you know you're not really getting them involved. Uh, you have to win people over. You have to get them emotionally you know, moving, engaged. Uh, rational is like the car, but the emotions are the fuel that drives the car. So one thing is how much emotional engagement, and then you're looking at you know, positive and negative emotions. And most of the core emotions that we document, uh, fear and anger and sadness and so forth, are negative. So you're looking to see how much can I offset that with hope? And hope basically comes back to the happiness. Got it. Okay. Well, let's talk about your first book, which is Body of Truth, Leveraging What Consumers Can't or Won't Say. Uh, sure. put it out in 2002, and this book was much more focused just on marketing and branding. Uh, some points I really wanted to make that were essential is that uh, it's now estimated that less than 1% of our mental activity is fully conscious. Uh, as a character in Sex in the City says, how come our friends can see us so clearly, but we can't see ourselves? And that's the human predicament. So once you realize that, and once you realize that most communication, about 55%, is through the face and very little through words, then you need to start to hunt for some nonverbal communication. So I was really trying to set the table for the fact that people start, need to start moving beyond the focus groups and the internet surveys where they're just working from a conscious verbal basis because that doesn't really tell you what's happening for someone. Uh, J.P. Morgan, the great financier, once said that a man makes a decision for two reasons, the good reason and the real reason. And I think the real reason is most often emotional. Mm-hmm. Can you give me an example with one of your customers about how you got to the real reason? Well, we get to the real reason by looking at the videotape. And I, I'm always fascinated. There was an example where someone was uh, being asked the money question, you know, would you buy this you know, particular drug, it happened to be, it's for a pharmaceutical company. And the woman very definitely said yes, like twice. And at the same time she said yes, she showed the upside-down smile that Vice President Dick Cheney has made so famous. And that smile is essentially a disgust expression. It has nothing to do with, I can't wait to get this cute product home. And I think that's where we're looking for the disconnects. If you've never been lied to in life, uh, you wouldn't need facial coding. Uh, But in fact, we all have been. 
and we're trying to help companies make a better decision. And in this case, it was about the packaging. Uh, they were looking at some packaging where they could save some money by making it more cheaply, but it turned people off in a big way. And so we had to argue for them that they could save money on the factory floor, but they're going to lose it on the sales floor because people take their health and their physical well-being seriously, and people were offended by the flimsy packaging. And so the first one was really about the fact that people say one thing and it, it, it be, their face belies the truth and they might not even know the truth themselves, but their face will show the truth. Is that the net of your book, Body of Truth? Yes, it is, because people don't necessarily know where they're coming from or they won't tell you and you still need to get there. You still need to get traction and make the right decision. So absolutely. And then you, you have a second book because you have a lot to say on this subject, which is fascinating. Your second book is called Fooled Again, How Emotions Drive Business Outcomes. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, that book um, is really going to be much broader in scope. Uh, it's, it's coming out uh, next February, and that book is uh, not just looking any longer at uh, – customers, it's also looking at employees, because you, you find yourself in a work situation where the longer you go, it, you know, you're less and less likely to uh, you know, feel comfortable with your boss. All these things keep welling up over time, these, these issues that build almost like scar tissue. Uh, we had a fascinating project for a, a major company where the chairman had an idea for how he wanted to position the company to employees. We ran the test, and one of his key phrases just didn't resonate with employees. They didn't buy into it. And I have to give the guy a lot of credit. Uh, he asked about the test method, and then he actually made a switch to uh, a different strategy that his marketing people said would have more credibility. And you're doing a workshop at the AdTech Chicago. You're doing it on Monday, July 24th at 3.15. It's called All You Need Is Love, Using Emotional Buy-In to Create Long-Term Customers. Can you tell us about this workshop that you're leading and what, what an attendee would learn and how they might participate? Yeah, the, the first thing is they're going to get a chance to understand without driving them crazy about biology, just how important the structuring of the brain is. The rational brain literally grew out of the emotional brain. And I think uh, some of the people you said might turn off the show when they realize it was about warm and fuzzies need to know that everybody's actually an emotional decision maker. Uh, muscle activity ties to the emotional part of the brain. We make decisions because we have a gut reaction, and that's what drives us forward. So the first part has to be at least a little bit of you know, establishing how important emotions really are, and from there it's a chance to move on and talk about these core emotions and how people signal them. And probably the most interesting part is there's something called micro-expressions, which are little quick expressions that flit across people's faces. So I'll have some videotape and a chance to give people... Uh, opportunity to, to start to detect those for themselves. Neat. That sounds fun. So people are going to actually be able to learn as they're interacting with you. Yep. I love it. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. I'm definitely going to be in that workshop at the AdTech Chicago. I'm, re I'm really appreciative that you came on the show today. There's a, there's a lot of depth of information here, and we really need to do a vidcast, not a podcast, to, to do uh, your coverage of your category effectively. So I appreciate you coming on. And I will see you at AdTech Chicago, and we're going to go for a break. Okay. Thank you, Susan. Thanks, Dan. Sit tight and don't move. AdTech Connect. We'll be right back. 
Wow, looks like you caught another one. Yeah, thanks. That uh, makes 23 so far. You're kidding me. I haven't caught a thing yet. Really? Well, what kind of bait are you using? Same as you. Well, then maybe it's where you're fishing. What do you mean? Well, if you want to catch fish, don't throw your line out in the middle of a big lake. Take a smart look around for where the fish congregate, like over by this log. So I just have to look smart, huh? That's right. It's all about fishing where the fish are. Learn how you can fish where the fish are. Go to signup.looksmart.com. Signup.looksmart.com. Once a tool used exclusively for communicating with the media, PR Web was the first company to develop a distribution strategy around direct-to-consumer communication by implementing Web 2.0 technologies. PR Web has completed the online communication loop by directly engaging your audience with your news. For example, PR Web is the first newswire to integrate press release trackback. Whether you want to dominate your market or just make a little noise, PR Web is here to help. You thrive in the marketplace and the media. PR Web. Dude, fishing in Costa Rica is going to be awesome. Amen, bro. Now that Value Click Media had netted FastClick, we've got one of the largest online advertising networks fishing us for big bucks. You know, while we're out catching snapper. Hey, Steve, you're coming too, right? No, I'm still using BannersRUs.com. I can't afford to be away. You've got to work with Value Click Media. i got this great account manager who's easy to work with, and they have access to the best advertisers and earn me high rates. Don't worry. We'll bring back pictures. Yeah, terrific. Visit Value Click Media now and click on Solutions for Publishers for more details. Value Click Media. I am jealous of Katie Kempner. If you're listening to her show, she's got this fabulous kind of hip-hop intro. There are no good songs about Susan. I love Shrek. I'm an ogre. Well, see, you're my kind of guy. You're technical, you're super smart, and you're tall and handsome. We need a little time, you know, to be together. Fantastic. You're too hot not to be married. Some woman snatched you up already. Is that right? Fiona and I are married now. And you sound like a Texan. Are you a native Texan? I'm an ogre. All right. Will you play a little game with me? Oh, you mean like sorting the mail and watering the plants? You don't have to kiss my butt or anything. Don't worry. Ad Tech Connect. Only on webmasterradio.fm. Join the club. We've got jackets. Now, back to AdTech Connect, only on webmasterradio.fm. Here's your host. We're back, and this is Susan Bratton, the woman with no song. I know, it's the continuing saga of my life. I work so hard putting out this podcast, and yet I don't have a theme song. But I do have good news. The good news is that at the Chicago... Ad Tech, we have a really cool keynote. A woman named Laura Lee Albin, she's the president of a company out of Santa Cruz, California called Albin Design, uh, is essentially part of the, I don't know, I think a pioneer of the design economy is probably a good description of her. She's very forward thinking in that she combines creativity and uh, sustainability and brings those concepts together in organizations like Apple Computer and Procter and Gamble. And uh, she does really good workshops. She's an internationally acclaimed speaker. She's a designer. She's an author. And uh, she is coming to do both the keynote at AdTech called The Creativity Continuum Designing a Strategic Flow of Ideas and Innovation. 
Because that Tech Chicago is about creativity. And then that next morning on uh, Tuesday morning, the 25th of July, you can come in and do a personal workshop with her. It's a limited, small workshop, and it's about designing your own flow. So you get to go to her keynote and hear about how you can design creative flow in your organization. And then you can learn about how to do it in your life and in your professional world. And so I wanted to tell you about that because it's a beautiful segue to another speaker that we have at EdTech. Chicago. That's Jordan Ion. He's the chairman of a company called Create It, and he's written two books that we're going to talk about today. Good morning, Jordan. Good morning. How are you today? How are you? I'm doing excellent, Susan. How about yourself? Very well. Now, you were teed up to do uh, AdTech San Francisco. I'm sure we had some disappointed folks. Your son got sick. Is that right? Yes, he did. And now so how's I apologize for not making it. He's doing great now. Good. So he was just ill, and you needed to stay behind, which we totally understand. There was no one to fill your shoes, so we canceled the session, but you're back for Chicago and ready to roll. And being that we're in Chicago, we're looking forward to hosting you guys here. Excellent. Well, I look forward to that, too. We're going to need to know some good blues bars, the best restaurants in town, all that stuff. We'll give you a good list. All right, good. So um, we today, we're going to talk. So you're doing a workshop at AdTech Chicago, and it's about brainstorming, because that's what I was looking for. Can you tell our listeners what you're going to do there, and then we'll get into some of the foundation work that you've done around creativity. Well, we're going to focus on two areas. First of all, creativity is one of those areas that I believe is a, a, a lifelong experience. It's not something that you can sit down and just say, I'm going to be more creative today, and poof, you're more creative. So we're going to start by taking a little bit of time to explore what it is that can help you be more creative in your life. But then we're really going to focus in on how can you harness a team of people that have a variety of life experience that's helped bring that creativity into their life and harness that in a group setting using a variety of different techniques to help them be much more creative. In most organizations, um, people say we're going to do brainstorming, and that really results in them sitting around in a group and tossing out ideas. That is a form of brainstorming, it is probably the single most ineffective form of brainstorming. There are a lot of other ways to be much more powerful in generating ideas, but they're techniques that involve thinking about generating ideas in different ways. So we're going to talk about what some of those, some of those methodologies are. We're going to actually have an opportunity to try some of those out and just get people thinking about the next time they sit down and say, let's do some brainstorming, using some of these techniques to really get beyond just the ideas that pop into people's minds. I, I love this. This is fascinating. And I think what we should do today, not everyone in the world is going to make it to AdTech Chicago. So could you do that thing that's you know better than just sitting around coming up with ideas and not the perfect thing you should be doing, but that, that middle-of-the-road thing that someone could take into their company this afternoon and put into practice. And then that will leave our listeners with something really good and juicy. Sure. Um, I think the starting point is to start with the individual that's going to be in that session because I think I don't think you can you can do anything in any brainstorming session without focusing on the person or the people that are going to be in that session and understanding what it is that helps them be creative because there's there's a key thing that happens in any session or any time people are going to generate ideas there's one thing that really makes those ideas pop into somebody's head and it's 
that your mind's ability to make connections. Um, our mind has this incredible filing cabinet, a, a database of information out there, that any time we receive an input, it has a need to go and make context, put it in some context that we can understand. And that's, psychologically, that's called a transderivational search. Transderivational. Uh, transderivational search. Call it, okay. a T, call it a TD, if you will. Okay. But if I say to you, Jack and Jill, mm-hmm. what comes next? Up the hill. Now, you weren't thinking about Jack and Jill. You probably hadn't thought of them in years. Right. But the fact that I gave you some trigger, it caused your mind to immediately go into your database and say, I need to, I need to put this in some context that I can understand. And it went out and it found all of the different things that you might associate Jack and Jill with, and it brought this back and put it into your mind. Right. And, I got and images and all kinds of things. Now, the interesting thing is there's also a cultural component to this. If you, I, I actually did this down in Argentina, and I met with the translator that was doing my session beforehand, and I said Jack and Jill, and it means absolutely nothing in their culture. Okay. But if you say rice and raisins uh, down there, they'll all say tomorrow we'll get married. I have no idea why that works, but <laughs> it, also, it also illustrates a very important component when you're dealing in, in, a, in a corporate brainstorming session. One of the keys to success is bringing diversity into that session. If all you have are the same people that you always have in those sessions, you're always going to get the same kind of ideas. So one of the keys is to bring a group of people together that aren't the same people you always have in those sessions. So going back to this concept of the individual, it's important to realize what it is that is going to help them to have those creative connections. And it's also, for you as an individual, what's going to basically give you points of inspiration for the rest of your life. And you can, in, you can do things that will really increase that. And it's what I call your creative core. And core is an acronym. It stands for your curiosity, your openness, your willingness to take a risk, and your energy. Energy is really what puts your ideas into action. All right, now say those again a little slower. We're gonna, we like to write these things down. What are the, there was four it, things? It, it's, it's an acronym. It's core. It's okay. your creative core. All right. And it's your curiosity. Yeah. Your openness. Okay. Your willingness to take risk. Yeah. And your energy. Okay. So I would say that, especially in the corporate environment, you know, people are usually curious unless they're dumb, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the average person's curious. The average person is reasonably willing to take some risk. They usually will bring a lot of energy to it. But I, mm-hmm. I would worry that it's the openness and risk part that 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 are the the things that people fear in the work environment, right? Right. But I. All of those don't necessarily need to connect back to work because what you do is you constantly are feeding all four of those elements. And you can do a lot throughout your entire life to increase your curiosity, your openness, your willingness to take risk. And certainly you can do lots of things to increase your energy. But just having listened to your last, your last guest, Dan, Yep. When, when he was talking about his time in Italy as a child, yeah. he was illustrating a great example of one of, the, one of the easiest tools you can use to increase your openness, and that's travel. You know, he talked about the different body language people have in Italy. Well, one of the great ways to give your mind the ability to make more connections is to travel, because when you travel, you expose yourself to different cultural frameworks. I like to refer to it as cultural software. So he saw different body language in Italy than he saw in the United States. Now, who knows, that simple little difference may have been something that gave him the creative spark that allowed him to see the idea that he ultimately came up with. Mm -hmm. So 
So it's those little things. Well, it was through a pain point. He couldn't read those people. He didn't understand their physical vocabulary. Right. And then he realized how important expression was to him. Exactly. So yeah, it's, that sent him on his path. It's, it's those type of things that you can experience. And there are a lot of in, strategies. In, in my book, Aha, there are some strategies you can use, um, 10 of them, that actually can help you increase your core. So let's, let me say the name of your book. It's Aha, 10 Ways to Free Your Creative Spirit and Find Your Great Ideas. And one of the things that I was really impressed by is that right on the front of the book, you have... Um, a, a recommendation? What are those things called on books that people write for you? Uh, a, a blurb or a... A blurb. Uh, uh, it says, Jordan Ion is the Wizard of Ahas by Roger Van Eck, the author of A Whack on the Side of the Head, which, until I had your book, Aha, was my Bible for creativity. Uh, Richard, I mean, Roger Van Eck has a card. Uh, it's called the Creative Whack Pack, the which whack I pack, know you yeah. know about. I've had that creative whack pack of cards. It's kind of like tarot for creativity. You know, you just pull a card, and or you might find some cards that are things you're not good about in, in your creative process, and you could look at your next ten problems through that filter. It's really a, a cool thing. And the fact that he gave you your reference on the front of your book, I thought, oh, this is going to be a great read. Well, let's talk about Roger's whack pack, because it's, it's a great example of what we were just talking about. Um, if you haven't seen Roger Van Eck's whack pack, head over to your local bookstore or visit Amazon and order a deck, because it is, uh, it is a fantastic tool for a brainstorming session. And Order it does 10 and give I'm, them away to everyone you know. Give them, give them away. Um, <laughs> they basically do what, what, what I just talked about. They cause that connection, that trans-derivational search to occur. Because what you do and, and what you, you know, when you sit down, there are two types of ways. Uh, basically, almost all brainstorming sessions are going to break into two types. There's what are called the broad general mind type where you're just kind of throwing out whatever comes into your mind, and then there's the forced association type. And the forced association type brainstorming techniques tend to be the ones that are the most powerful, because what you're doing is you're getting the mind out of just random thinking, thinking about the idea, and you're forcing it to make some type of connection that doesn't necessarily relate to the problem. And what Roger's deck does very well is it forces you to look at something differently than you're looking at it already. And unfortunately, I don't have a deck in front of you, in front of me, or I'd give you an example of one of those right now. Yeah, they but, have things like the judge, be the judge for the day. You know, correct. you might not be a person who uh, puts judgment on things. So in this particular case, when you come up with ideas, think about how you judge those ideas. I mean, there's all these different filters and like hats you can wear and different styles of being creative that you can take on. Yep. And um, so that's one type of forced association technique. Now, we talked about giving uh, your listeners some different ways of doing this. Okay, so so we now know that people come into this session with their creative core. And if you want to have a very effective session, you want to bring people into that session who have different perspectives or different creative cores. The mm-hmm. more diversity you can bring in that, the more perspectives, the different backgrounds people have, the more success you're going to have in that. Uh, and interesting, I've worked with companies where they've actually brought children into their brainstorming sessions because they throw in a completely different perspective and where they've actually had some outstanding ideas come out of the minds of these children because they didn't understand the problem at all. Yeah. 
and you don't necessarily always have to understand the problem to be able to come up with the ideas that solve it. Yeah, I read about something recently. There was like a, a test that they gave to adults and to children, and it was some kind of a thing they had to build with marshmallows or something, and the children just whomped on the adults. They just figured the whole thing out because there was no hierarchy or pecking order. or you yeah. know. The kids were just all started to try to figure it out at one time where the adults were like, all right, well, you take this. You know, they tried to divide it up and plan it out. And the children were done in about 15 minutes while the adults were still trying to figure out whose yeah. job was what. As a matter of fact, I think that was one of the speakers at TED this year. Oh, yeah, right. So we're fellow Tedisons. Exactly. We're, Who was yeah. that? Who did that speak? I, I don't remember, but it was build, uh, it was build at the highest structure you could build with marshmallows and spaghetti. <laughs> yeah, I just I do remember, and the kids the kids beat the adults out every time. You know, you throw a couple of martinis into that mix, and that's a fun party. <laughs> it is. <laughs> uh, All right, now I've completely lost you. Right, you're like, you right, have dinner, and, and you dinner afterwards and dessert. I love it. <laughs> All right, we were on types of thinking, and you were saying forced association is the thing that you want to find. You want to find a, a broad, a diverse group of people, so the crazy creatives, the bean counters, the pushy managers, the salespeople, the whatever. You get them all in a room, and you, how do you conduct forced association? Okay, the first thing you want to do is have a very clear understanding of what it is you're kind, going to try to accomplish. Um, in too many brainstorming situations, people get into the brainstorming before there's uh, a good statement of the problem or statement of the opportunity. So what you want to do first is get the entire group to work on the problem statement or the opportunity statement, whatever you want to define it. And it should be something like, in what way will we fill in the blank? Or how might we or how can we? Some very broad statement that specifically states what you're trying to achieve. And everybody in that group should reach consensus that that's what you're doing. Because so often what happens is that the group sort of has a vague understanding of what the problem is going to be or the challenge is, and they start brainstorming, but they don't all have the same problem in their mind, so they're all going in different directions. So whoever, you need somebody to facilitate the session, a person who has some good skills at getting a group of people to talk and controlling that, but then you want to get that person to really get the group to say, this is what we're working on. Once that's done, you want to start the group working on the actual idea generation process. Let, let me give you a couple of probably the most simple types of forced association techniques. Uh, one of my favorite and one that's very powerful is over the next month or so, as you're thumbing through magazines, just cut out random pictures. Okay. Don't don't try to don't try to pick your pick pictures based on any thought. Just pick out random pictures. Um, when we do this, I, you know, over the years we've probably uh, accumulated thousands and thousands of pictures which we've laminated. The more random the, they are, the better. And you just take these pictures and you give everybody in the group a picture, and you say, try to relate this picture to a solution to our problem. So what you're doing at this point is you're introducing randomness some completely unrelated picture to the problem. And what that does is it goes back to, you know, what we did with Jack and Jill. It, this person that's looking at the picture is now trying to make a connection between what they see in that picture and the problem that you're trying to solve. And what oftentimes it does is yeah. leads you down completely unique pathways mm -hmm. in directions that the mind would never have gone 
had the picture not triggered the direction. You know what I like about that too? It kind of takes some of the risk out of it if you're in a, if you're in a company meeting and someone shows you a picture. It, it's not just something you've manufactured yourself, but it's something that's been pulled out of you. So it's almost like you have less you have less responsibility for the idea mm-hmm. when it's being pulled out of you. Yep. And so, therefore, you might be willing to take more risk around it. So I really like that as a tool. Do you have any pictures o- over the years that you've been doing this? Do you have any pictures that really work well? Any certain little ones that are kind of your favorites that you always know are kind of going to pull something cool out? Uh, there's one that works a lot, and it, I don't know why it works, but it's a picture of three. I think it's a, actually an Ann Getty's picture of three babies in a bathtub. Oh, yeah. She makes the little babies look like flowers and things like that, yeah, right? Yeah, and I think this was one of her early early works before she actually started making them look like things, and it was just okay. three babies in a bathtub. Uh-huh. And for some reason, that seems to get a lot of people thinking. I don't know whether it's just thinking about early childhood or whatever it is, but it seems to elicit a lot of, a lot of discussion. Um, that's one that just popped into my mind when you said that. There's another one of a a cat that's juggling uh, a or a dog that's juggling a cat while standing on a ball um, that has a bird and a, a fish. It, it's probably because it has so many things going on in it um, that it generates a lot of ideas as well. But but again, it's totally random pictures. I don't know. You know, those just happen to stick in my mind as some that worked. But it doesn't necessarily even have to be pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do the same thing. We also do this with objects. We actually have what we call the creativity toolbox, which is just filled with random objects. And you just go into that box and, uh, you know, pull out a random object. It could be a paper clip or it could be, um, you know, a ball or it could be a pair of scissors. And you try to come up with ideas based on the object you've put in, pulled out of that box. Right, that um, reminds me of uh, in the WAC Pack, Roger Von Eck's WAC Pack. He has one that thinks that talks about think organic. If you had to think about something from nature and how mm-hmm. to apply that to your problem, how would you do it? Well, and we've actually done a technique where we that we call Nature Walk, where we've worked with pe- groups outside. And probably the most interesting one that I worked on, I, I did a group session with NASA, and we sent the group at NASA, and they were trying to work on a, a plane structure. And we sent the group of NASA out uh, just around the woods to come back with things to use for this idea session. And the actual wing structure they came up with for this plane came out of the uh, out of an idea that somebody came back bringing a mushroom. And if you think of the structure of a mushroom, a mushroom you cannot really crush. I mean, you can't you can smush it, but you can't crush it. And actually, that was the structure, the idea that led to the structure of the wing for this airplane they were working on. Now, Jordan, when they got the mushrooms, did they eat half and come up with it by looking at the <laughs> no, rest, or how did that all work? Not, not you know, that that's I, something not you could pull out of, of the box. <laughs> not that I know of. Okay. <laughs> I drive you crazy, don't I? <laughs> all right, so, so we're going to finish off on this this thread, because I think we may have... I lo- it's not a rat hole. I mean, everything's been very linear and very helpful. So uh, for our listeners, they want to go do a brainstorming session. They're going to get a box of mushrooms. They're going to get some pictures of babies. They're going to get random stuff. And then they're going to go into the room, and what's going to happen next? 
um, they're going to pass these pictures around and get people to start talking and give people an opportunity to talk. And don't the facilitator should let everybody, and there's a variety of different ways to do this, uh, try letting everybody talk in turn, go round robin, giving everybody a chance to talk. That mm-hmm. times that gets the introverts and the extroverts talking. Because if you have two people like you and me, we could probably you know keep the entire session going and not let anybody else talk. For a week. So, yeah, so you've <laughs> got to give everybody a chance to participate. Um, there are a couple of other techniques that work really well. Even if you're not doing a forced association technique, if you just need to do brainstorming quick, take people in a room, or if you can't do that, we like to take people in a room and turn out the lights in a room that you can completely darken. You'll usually find you'll get 30% more ideas in the same amount of time with the lights off because people aren't judging each other and they're not seeing the reaction on people's face. Because you can say in a brainstorming session, don't critique, don't give any crosstalk, don't give any feedback, but people still see and get that body language. Mm -hmm. You turn out the lights, you have them close their eyes, and you'll get 30% more ideas in the same amount of time. Interesting. All right, good. These are great. And this is all in your book, too. This is all in the book. Yeah. Good. And there'll be okay. more of it in my session in Chicago. How do you know when you're done? When you have your great idea and you're sitting on the beach in Hawaii enjoying the sun, <laughs> my you, know you've, you know you've had your great idea. <laughs> I love it. That's so nice. All right. So we, we have a good formula here. One of the things that I'm still not clear about, though, is the, the defining of the issue. Can you give me a couple of examples of workshops that you have conducted and the issues and how they, how they started and how you refined them so that people could address them? Because that was fuzzy for me still. Well, I think the, the, you know, we could do a whole workshop on problem statement uh, definition. So I think the main okay. thing is to get people to come into the workshop or come into the session with at least enough data that they can understand what it is they're working on and then spend the time. And sometimes you can actually spend more time in the problem definition stage than the actual brainstorming stage because you want to have a very clear, succinct statement of what it is you're trying to do. And I think that's where most times, you know, people want to immediately get into, let's solve this problem. And, and you know, they, they've solved a problem that they haven't even understood before, you know, and it may not be a problem at all. And they may have so many assumptions built into the problem that, um, you know, a lot of times they've not seen some of the opportunities to solve it because they've got so many assumptions built into it. And do you have an example of some workshops you've done that you could tell us about? Uh, where we where we did uh, assumptions, or where we were dealing with assumptions? No, where you um, where you had to refine the problem. Like it started out as one thing and it turned into another. Can you tell us about any of those so we can see an example of what people thought they were going to solve and then what they ultimately pinpointed as the issue to solve? Well, I, I've done a lot of work in the aerospace industry, and oftentimes when you're dealing with um, understanding, and I, I'm trying to think of it off the top of my head, a specific example, um, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now, but given a little more time, I probably could, and I know we're almost out of time here. I know, uh, you're probably feeling the pressure. Sorry about that. That's okay, but oftentimes when you're trying to understand what you're, you're trying to, especially when you're dealing with an aerodynamic issue, you know, you have two types of um, constraints on you. You certainly have the physics constraints, but then you also have uh, organizational or corporate constraints. And the corporate or organizational constraints are usually the assumptions that go into a problem, you know, that we have to do certain things a certain way just because they've always been done that way. You know, you have to create a wire harness using three departments, 
and that's one I can think of that was actually uh, just because we've always used three departments before doesn't mean you can't create the same wire harness by having one person do all the work that three people have done before. And that that's an actual example. But right. uh, as long as you define this problem by, you know, we have to have the three departments work on this harness, you never can see a solution that doesn't involve the three departments. So that was a solid example for us, and I think that really helped re- redefining how we're going to approach the problem. And one of the questions I have, this is my last question for you because our time is up. You are both the chairman of Create It, which is this, you're an author, this is your consulting company, and uh, you do that, but you're also the CEO of Subscriber Mail. So tell us what Subscriber Mail is in a nutshell, and tell us how you manage both of those businesses. Um, Subscriber Mail is an email marketing company. We do permission-based email for uh, many organizations, uh, companies like Harley-Davidson. We do all the email for Chicago Bulls. We only send permission-based emails, so we have no customers that don't send to people that want it. Uh, We do the Chicago Bulls and Blackhawks and many of the sports teams out there. And uh, we... This this was actually an idea that came to me out of uh, some of the other work we were doing. And I think, to me, that the, the way that I managed to do it is I have a great team of people that I work with. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm willing to allow these people to use their ideas to, to make them work. And uh, that's, that's how, it, uh, how it succeeds, is by having a good team. Nice. Well, you're a delightful human being, Jordan, and I'm so glad you came on the phone. So glad we'll see you in Chicago, and uh, I look forward to having you on the show again. It's been my pleasure. All right. I have one more little bit of news for our listeners. We have a special show coming up on Tuesday, May 30th at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm doing uh, what, I guess it's kind of like speed dating meets news brief. There was so much press launched at the AdTech San Francisco show last month that I wanted to do a special AdTech wrap-up show for San Francisco that covered as much of the news that was released as possible. And so I'm going to have a whole bunch of people on the show in an hour, hour and 20 minutes, and we're going to cover tons and tons of press, all kinds of new products, new services, new concepts, new everything. that was uh, unleashed at AdTech San Francisco. So you know you can tune in to hear it live Tuesday, May 30th, or, of course, you can get a free subscription through iTunes. Uh, Just look up AdTech Connect, and you'll get a download to your iPod. And, of course, you can always find us on webmasterradio.fm. This is Susan Bratton, your host for today and the chair of AdTech. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Have a great day. Webmasterradio.fm.